Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair critic Richard Lawson. And this week we will be discussing season two, episode four, House by the Lake, directed by Daniel Minahan and written as ever by Tom Rob Smith. Later in the episode, we will be joined by actor Cody Fern, who plays David Madsen and the show's writer and executive producer Tom Rob Smith. Um, but before we get into our usual episode breakdown, Richard, I wanted to get your temperature on this episode as a whole, because I know I think for both of us, this was the the toughest one to watch, but it's also my favorite episode, I think. So what what did you think of this episode? Well, I'm kind of where you are, Joanne. I mean, it, it it's my favorite, and then I think it's really well done and sets the tone for the whole okay. series uh, in a really beautiful way. But uh, it's really hard to watch. I've seen it two or three times, and... Uh, it, you know, it's just a really wrenching, frightening, uh, sad hour. Um, but because it's central performance and Co- Cody Fern as Madsen is so strong, like he carries you through it. Uh, and, and, you know, you really feel a sense of not, not catharsis at the end, but, um, I don't know. It, it's, I felt something pretty hefty in a way I hadn't about the other episodes. We talked about this a bit last week when we were talking about, um, Mike Farrell's performance as Lee Miglin and the way in which, um, you know, knowing that Lee Miglin is already dead in the first two episodes, and then we watch the third episode, we know this gentle old man is going to die. And it's sort of sad to watch him knowing that. And I think that's like, quadrupled in this episode. Um, because if you know that David Madsen is, you know, the, the episode starts with the murder of Jeff Trail. But if you know, David Madsen is also definitely one of Andrew Kinnan's victims, then you feel that sort of, um, 
reverse chronology doom hanging over this episode more than any other because um because of the like captivity on the run thing and so you're rooting for him to escape but you know he won't um and even if you didn't know that the second time then richard when rewatching it is just sort of there like this is not going to end well for this really appealing character played so well by cody friend and the other thing about this episode is like i i know most of the actors in this show having either you know seen their other great work or if you're aware of the ryan murphy verse like you know a finn whitrock who's in this is jeff trail or you know you know some of these other performers yeah. cody fern is someone i'd never seen before so mm-hmm. it's just taking you completely by surprise like he is david madsen to me because i've never literally never seen him do anything else and so it's just extra absorbed in that performance yeah and that's true makes any sense that's true casting and you know um we see that in movies and or, or things where uh the director doesn't want any pre-existing baggage to be brought in you know for the audience um and so even though this is a huge role that you know could have been i don't know some other famous more famous actor i think it was really smart on everyone's part to say no we need a newcomer um, because we really want to immerse you in this uh, fraught world um, for the 57 minutes of the episode, and they, and they succeed really well. Yeah, and, th- and that's the last point I want to make before I roll into sort of us breaking it down scene by scene, which is that this is a 57-minute episode. Um, it's not the longest of the season. Uh, so far, that's like the penultimate, which I think is a little over an hour, but it's the longest we've had so far. Um, and I, I feel that length, and I feel that time that they took to really sort of take you on this journey with um with andrew and david so let us dive in to this episode which starts with some i don't know if it's real or or faked sort of footage uh tourism footage about minneapolis and it stresses the importance of water and specifically lakes in the city's identity this episode is called house by the lake so that's you know sort of a motif that they come back to this um you know david madsen is killed by a lake um it's in flashbacks it's a it's a whole and, it's a whole theme. And he was found near an abandoned house, which is something right. that Tom tells us in the interview that will air later. Okay, yeah. Um so this is we you know, we talked about this last week, how important it is to pay attention to the title cards mm-hmm. that will show up with more frequency now. Um this episode takes place almost exclusively in April nineteen ninety seven one week before the death of Lee Miglin. So one week before the episode we saw last week, uh, we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, and it opens in uh, David Madsen's like beautiful, spacious, airy loft uh, in Minneapolis. And um, yeah, and so we, we just kick off with Cody Fern, like in characters, you know, here we meet David Madsen. And we talked last week, Richard, about um, the work that that episode did in introducing the nimble sort of narrative work that episode did in introducing who Lee Miglin and Marilyn Miglin were with some like um, tight sort of uh, expo- expository dialogue yeah. uh, with David. We're just sort of like plunge. You know, we, we find out immediately that he's an architect because he's trying to like get, get the chance to do a pitch, but you know, we're sort of just plunged into him uh, from the start. What do you think of that approach? Yeah, I thought it was a little disorienting and um, a lot of this is clarified in the next episode. Um, mm-hmm. But and in that disorientation works also for this episode, which is kind of this just really m- 
intense two-hander psychological thing. Um, so just kind of throwing you into it and jarring you. And I think that there's something about that apartment that's really stark. It's kind of all like concrete or some cement or something. Um, it kind of feels like dungeon-like. Like it, it's it's a grim mood right away. Um, and I think the confusion is part of that grimness in a weird way. Yeah, I I would have to rewatch it, but it feels there must be windows in there. Feels like it feels like a kill room before yeah, it becomes a kill right? room, exactly. almost. You know. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, what's true about the real David Madsen is they think he was doing some, uh, reconstructive work on his loft. So his loft was sort of like in a state of construction, um, when the murders happened. But, um, you, you're right. I, the disorientation, because they're, they also, they're talking about conversations they've had over this weekend that Andrew spends in Minneapolis that we won't see until next week's episode. So it is, you know, they're like, let's forget about it. Or I mean, everything I said, or whatever it is, we don't know what they're talking about. And it is like really disorienting. Andrew, you know, as Darren Chris is playing him, Andrew is being very creepy, even before uh, he starts murdering people. And so it's just, it's really ominous. I think. Yeah, because we don't, Especially since, we don't at yeah. first know that he's in that apartment, right? When, when, when the episode starts? Yeah, he just like creeps into frame. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Which <laughs> yeah. is like, I don't know, exactly. like maybe there's some kind of symbolism there about like, you know, th- this kind of just regular life, but like actually Andrew Kananen was there infecting it the whole time. We just didn't know, you know, um, I don't know. There's something there, but yeah, it, it, it's a good introduction to, 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 to this scene. Yeah. And we, we meet David's dog Prince mm-hmm. who uh, was a Dalmatian in real life, but is some sort of like wolfhound in this, or I don't know what kind of, sorry, uh, forgive me dog lovers. I don't know what kind of dog that is. <laughs> it's not a Dalmatian. I'll tell you that much right now. Um, and, and, and the, the dog is sort of integral to the whole timeline of what happened with David and Andrew, because, you know, as we'll talk about, this is, this is the episode I think has to do the most work to uh, create a narrative because we know so little about what happened, what actually happened with Andrew and David since the only people who were there died. So, um, you know, we know some things like, you know, where Jeff's body was found, where, where David's body was found, but we don't know why David goes on this trip and we know a few markers. And so the, you know, Tom Rob Smith had a really challenging task in sort of creating a believable motivation for David for this whole episode, if that makes um, any sense. So, yeah, I mean, I, and something we'll talk, uh, talk to Tom about in that interview is that, you know, it's, it's tricky because you don't want to um, sensationalize or you don't want to kind of infer too much about something you don't know, especially someone who's been murdered. Um, But I think that using that unknown quality, that ambiguity to kind of present a lot of what the show is more broadly about is smart. And I think, affords david uh the humanity that um you know that he that he deserves so you know we we get we have this business of um andrew sort of getting luring jeff to the apartment you know he's stolen jeff's gun he lures jeff to the apartment he gets um david to go down and answer the door and and let jeff in all so that you know when jeff comes in he can just attack him with a hammer it's a very upsettingly brutal uh thing there's you know you know gushes of blood on the wall and then and then andrew darren Cress himself is just covered yeah. in blood and there's it's disgusting. some really yeah. gnarly foley work too like the sound is 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 pretty rough yeah. <laughs> so it's just uh there, yeah. there you go for it you know um before before uh Finn, Finn Whitrock leaves us in this episode. He and David have this little conversation where he says he knows about us. 
Um, and this isn't this isn't the last time the show will imply that there was some kind of relationship between David Madsen and Jeff Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no ev- there's zero evidence that there was actually a relationship between the two of them. That was, I think, something certainly Andrew was worried about. Um, but in in actuality, that's sort of a little bit of a flight of fancy that the show is taking. Um, that there there's something happening with them because we see David dating other people, so it's not just Jeff and David, but like. That that is slight show invention. Um, and then uh, before you know it, Jeff Trail is dead. But it's not the last we'll see of him. Finn Wittrock will return as we go backwards in time. Um, and then this scene, I think, is crucial to selling the rest of the episode because Cody Fern is so believably and entirely in shock here as Andrew is being absolutely insane and comforting him and clutching the hammer and covered in blood that like I I can I can believe anything that David Madsen did because of what Cody Fern delivers here with the like shaking and the crying and the and the just stunned silence and all of that what what was your take on this reaction yeah no I think it's I think it's really well done I mean it's really well calibrated like you know I think that there's a tendency um to assume like well i wouldn't do that in that situation or whatever you know to kind of like but i think that 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 shock that that utter just you know almost blank reaction uh is probably really credible you know it's that's probably what a lot of of us would do in this kind of insane uh situation um and i think that it's smart of the show i mean obviously the show needs to kind of explain why madsen went on this trip like you said um but you know they i think that psychologically it feels like a really accurate portrait of that moment yeah, and like we get David's fear because he asks, like, "Are you going to kill me?" You know, but you killed Jeff, and we get David also like, uh, pretty soon after that, like asking Andrew to call the police. You know, they never called the police. So why, why did David never call the police, or why did Andrew never call the police if David wasn't like somehow complicit in this? And this is like believable to me because there's this whole manipulation, um, that Andrew does of him, like you would be implicated in the crime, which actually turns out to be kind of prescient but um uh you know we can see it as a transparent manipulation you know like for what it is and it only works on david because he's so unnerved by what he's seen right i mean in some ways like this person you've just seen murder somebody you know who could be you know dangerous to you uh is telling you something and you might just be like oh you know he's right or you might just believe him because he had so much of the power in that situation then we get this scene where um, Andrew pulls out some gay porn that belongs to David, a little bit of bondage gear um, and a toolbox. And it's um, it's th- this is like a debated thing, whether or not David Madsen is into bondage gear. But what is true is that the cops found some um, like I think nipple clamps or like that, that uh, Andrew actually had brought to the apartment for the weekend, like in his luggage, I believe they found it. And so I think, and that, that did feed into their immediate thing of this is, a, you know, a lover's, a gay lover spat that went awry. They were into some weird kinky stuff and obviously weird kinky sex stuff means murder or whatever yeah. in this, in this uh, crazy, terrible homophobic logic, um, from the, from Minneapolis police. There's no evidence that Andrew sort of staged that, but, but the show is, sort of making it seem like Andrew staged this and that, um, you know, as he staged um, the gay porn, uh, the Lee Miglin mm-hmm. murder. And so um, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing that the show is doing in like implying that Andrew is sort of leveraging 
the police homophobia against them uh, by leaving this stuff out and sort of confusing confusing the trail yeah. do you know what oh I mean? absolutely it's totally manipulative you know it's funny with the the, the the this stuff is that um i was having this conversation with a friend about uh like uh, over the holidays and about how it could be kind of awkward to talk to family about relationships or whatever if you're gay because and as my friend put it when it's when you're gay it's it's automatically r-rated you know like it's it's there's not like a PG version of it in a lot of people's minds. And so like, if you found like porn and maybe some little tiny sex toy thing in a straight person's house, you'd be like, okay, whatever, you know, or the police would think nothing of it maybe. But because it's a gay man versus a straight man, it automatically takes on this kind of lurid, you know, um, deviant sort of quality. um, Something that, Cunanan in the show's estimation of him both is savvy to and uses, like you said, uh, as a kind of leverage point, which uh, makes it doubly cruel in a way. Yeah, the way the using his leverage is sort of an interesting new shade to put it to put onto his character um, in general. Like, I think I think it's clear from the Lee Miglin murder that um there's a lot of of self-hatred and also hatred of people who are in the closet that motivated that murder. That 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 would be how I would interpret the evidence of that scene and the way it's portrayed in that episode. Uh upon first watch, I didn't really think about that when it came to David and Jeff, but um you know, the show is like is connecting the dots there and saying this is this is a primary driver for this person. All right. And so we, you know, we see David sort of try to leave a little bit while um, Andrew is sleeping. He says he wants to walk his dog. We see uh, Andrew roll Jeff up in the carpet and sort of shove him in the corner of the room. Um, And then so then we get this scene in the elevator with David and Andrew and the dog. And this is one of those. Um, this actually happened points that the show has to navigate. So like, how do you get after on the timeline after Jeff's murder? How do we then get a neighbor eyewitness saying they saw um, Jeff and Andrew and the dog in the elevator together? You know, right. like what what logically makes sense? Like that is that's a thing that made the cops think that Andrew and Jeff were in on it together together because uh, that Andrew and David were in on it together because they were seen sort of like um genially walking the dog together um but we see David as as sort of like a a desperate hostage uh in that scene from our perspective yeah. you know you know it's i mean I, I, the show inarguably says that like Madsen was not in on it you know it kind of takes that makes that decision um that i think is kind of the consensus thinking at this point um yeah and you know i don't i'm not an expert on any of this by any means but like it just doesn't seem to me knowing everything i do know about madsen that that, that would and, and about cunanan and about what he had was was on his way to do you know in a way that like it's such a personal thing for him it doesn't really make any sense as a begin, beginning as a tandem you know you know two people killing someone and you know going on the run that doesn't sound right or track at all so i i i believe what they're what the show argues you know Oh yeah, and I I completely believe it too. I like there's there's no evidence that other than like the the early assumptions the cops made that there's no evidence that David Madsen was helping Andrew in this at all. Um, and then the, this is like this is the like really cruel 
stroke of genius from Andrew, who says he won't hurt anyone as long as David's by his side. And so that's the pressure David feels to not leave Andrew unsupervised, because what if Andrew then hurts someone else and he could have prevented it? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know. So there's all this stuff with like the coworker coming by, uh, you know, that, that happened in real life. She, you know, like it, David Madsen's not the kind of kid who would miss a day of work and not say anything about it. Um, and David and Andrew drive off in just red Jeep. And then the, you know, the, our first set of bumbling policemen arrive and Linda says she saw, like his coworker says she saw David's body. It's not David's body, but she assumes it is. And, and then they go in and this, this is like, this is the thing, one of the things that gives Maureen Orth license to call this the failed manhunt, right? Because the police go in and they do all this stuff. And when they later discover it's not David's body, they leave because, um, Maureen Orth argues because the OJ Simpson case, put all cops on high alert of not doing things in a way that would get evidence thrown out in court. Um, and that just, it just all this misunderstanding wastes time. And in the meantime, Dave is in trouble and no one's looking for him. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and they're just treat, the police are just treating it so archly, you know, yeah. and, and it's so the, the contrast between this really nice, caring friend who we will see later in the series, um, and, and this, the indifference of the police and the sort of, you know, that very, that, well, we can't, we, oh, we can't be in here now, you know, it's just, it's really disheartening and, 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 and adds to the sadness of the, of a very sad episode. Yeah. And this one cop just keeps going on about the buzzer being broken in the, like, which, you know, might be evidence for the case, but really just sounds so cavalier and blase. Um, while, yeah, this friend of David's is looking on in, in panic and, and despair. So, you know, they leave mm-hmm. the, the cops leave the apartment to go get their search warrant. And as they go, he says, your friend David Madsen is the victim. He's the killer. And it's like, no. Um, and then we get, this is what, this is what really ramps this episode up from, um, uh, good to great or great to excellent, um, is this flashback stuff with David and his dad. Um, which I think is other than like sort of the flight of fancy we had, um, in the first episode when Andrew and Versace were at the opera, this seems to be me to be like one of the more artistic choices is to weave this dad flashback, especially the way it pays off at the end throughout this episode. Yeah. And the dad stuff could be, it could be really corny, you know, it could be schmaltzy and, I think there's maybe an argument to be made that there is a moment or two maybe in this episode where that does happen. Um, But because we really don't know anything about Madsen, uh, you know, and and certainly don't know what was going through his head at this time, I think that some sort of dramatic invention was required and to to kind of connect us to him in a deeper level. Um, And I think that it really pulls that off. And by the, the, the end of the episode where, you know, this kind of dad flashback thing kind of comes full circle, um, it's, I think it really pays off. Yeah, this, I'm, you're right. It's like, so it threads the needle mm-hmm. of cheesy to see like a little blonde boy in like a plaid shirt. That's very similar to the plaid shirt that Cody Fern is wearing as an adult. Um, 
and and to see him like be so super sensitive about hunting and killing and look on in horror at the dead duck the same way that the adult you know mm-hmm. um Dave Madsen looks on at horror is like murdered friend and and all this sort of stuff um and and somehow misses that for me just just works for me and i i don't i mean i think it's just because it's used so sparingly um that that it works for me um if it had been used if it if like almost every scene had cut to it i think i think it would have been too much for me um is it this scene that is like a little too schmalzy for you or is it the the later sort of coming out scene it's the coming out scene that where it's, yeah, it's okay. a couple well, things we'll the dad that. says i'm like is that really like i don't know blue collar minnesota 1990 whatever <laughs> guy i don't know if i really buy that but yeah right okay um so then we we cut back to sort of present day 1997. Um, Andrew is not reading the room and uh, dancing to pump up the jam in the car uh, as, you know, as you are want to do when you're on the run for murder. Um, and, you know, but that's just Andrew living his his highly fant- fantastical life and they they stop for food and andrew talks about lee miglin and he talks about uh going to mexico we get a little nod to andrew's like possible life as a drug runner because he says he's been back and forth across the mexican border lots of times um the cops come back this time with the search warrant and a forensic team and then we see the Jeff Trail autopsy, and and we'll talk to Finn Whitrock about this next week. But this is just like a really brutal um, body double and head double that they made to slice open for this scene. The the, the head is just just caved in. It's awful, um, and um, you know the 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 investigators finally figure out which dead body they're looking at, which is not. Andrew Kananen, not David Madsen, but Jeff Trail. So, um, and, uh, you know, we just get, we get this, like, it's just this really tense David and Andrew on the road stuff, like yeah. seeing this woman who, you know, David thinks recognizes him. Um, and then I'm just curious what you think about this, you know, this thing that Tom Rob Smith had to event where David talks about, David wonders to himself as they're driving the car, like, was he really worried about being implicated in Jeff Trail's murder or did he not want to go to the authorities because his sexuality would become news and maybe upset his family in their hometown? Uh, what did, what did you think of this connection? Yeah, no, I thought that was, I think that's a smart scene. And, and again, Fern is great in, you know, as he's kind of having this, this revelation of a sort, um, uh, or at least addressing something that he hadn't really addressed before. Um, and I think that that thing about, you know, who will buy from my dad's shop and, um, that's, that's a common worry for, for, a lot, for anybody who, you know, for, for, in one way or the other lives a life that is not, you know, straight down the middle, like completely normative, I guess. Um, and, um, and I think it's articulated smartly in the show and, I buy it, you know, I buy that psychology again. I think that this, this episode in particular, because it's so much invented, um, for the show, uh, really requires that, you know, you, you kind of re up your, your, you know, trust in the show with every kind of subsequent scene. And I think that it, it, it does that, um, because it's so truthful about its psychology and emotion, you know, and then, so if it's truthful about that, we can maybe buy the, the facts they invent. Yeah, and and once again the performance 
um, from Cody Fern is so good here. This is one of my favorite shots. And we, we haven't talked a lot about the compositions on this show, but this is one of my favorite classic setups, which is a, a driving scene where we're looking at the passenger, looking out the window and thinking and talking um, rather than sort of like trying to shove the camera inside the body of the car. Um, and it just, um, the movement coupled with his like contemplation and all of that is, uh, I think just remarkably effective. Um, and it's cut back and forth with the cops going to the Madsen family house, telling them that David Madsen, you know, is a killer is, is Andrew's accomplice and, um, having Madsen's dad, you know, say he doesn't, he doesn't believe it. Um, the only, my only confusion around this is like, we get this coming out scene. Um, so we know that David is out to his family, which he was uh, in reality. So, um, his fear, I mean, I guess, it's, I guess his fear is more the people in his hometown. Yeah. It's more the uh, community finding out, not, yeah, you know, not his parents right. finding out because they already knew, but the, but the community and his parents being blackballed. And I think what he says is the, the shame and the disgrace of it all. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think that yeah. we, the, the narrative that we see most, um, on television or in film, if we're talking about a coming out, is the coming out to parents, right? Because that's the most immediate and most, you know, they, they, they wield a lot of power over you, whether that's actually, you know, real power or sort of emotional power, whatever. But there is a broader coming out that has to happen as well, if, if, if you want it to, you know, which is your neighbors knowing or your parents' friends know, you know, or whatever. And I think that a lot of people can get through that first step and have still have a lot of, a really hard time with that next one. You know, I think that that the show illustrates that pretty well. Yeah. And I mean, it, it works well for David's character. David, who's left his small town to go to Minneapolis, like he's out there, like all his coworkers and friends know he's gay in Minneapolis, but it's back home. That's a question. And also, uh, you know, we'll get to this, uh, David talking about this more specifically really soon, but, uh, this idea of wanting to reinvent himself, which is something that, you know, Andrew was driven and perverted by is something that is also of interest to David. Like that's mm-hmm. sort of what attracts this fictional version of David to Andrew in the first place. This idea of like, who can I be? Like, can I be this rich, sophisticated person, which is who he thinks Andrew is? Um, and how can I get there? Um, how, how can I leave, uh, whatever trapped feelings he had in his small town and become this other person? Right. And then we get the, I want to say it's the craziest thing that happens on, um, on this TV series outside of, um, you know, the actual murders, which is Amy Mann, uh, in a, in a Minnesota dive bar, Mm -hmm. uh, singing the cars. I actually Googled when I watched this, I was like, was Amy Mann a bar (laughs) singer in in the nineties and in in Minnesota? Uh, we'll have a piece up on VF.com sort of about how this Amy Mann cameo came about. But suffice to say for the moment, like, uh, it's, it's distracting because it's Amy Mann, such a famous singer. Um, so that takes you out of the reality of it. But as you said earlier, like, it doesn't, this, this episode works for all this, like, the surreal moments yeah, that, yeah. that are in it. Yeah. Um, and it gets, what did you think? I like it. Yeah. It gets gradually more surreal and more dreamlike, you know, and I, mm-hmm. and I think that in a, I think that that, that's what makes it, watchable you know if it was just like really like gritty you know and for 57 minutes i think it would be i don't wouldn't have wanted to watch it a second time certainly um and i don't know the amy man thing in particular 
I guess Magnolia was coming out a few years after after this, but like her voice is so um, just burned into my brain as the voice of that movie and of that soundtrack that I was obsessed with when I was a, a teenager. And so I found something comforting, but also melancholy about hearing that voice, you know, and then to have it in this context. Um, it's a strange move, but I think, again, like so much else in this episode, it really works. I know you half expect... Darren Chris to start singing like uh, Wise exactly. Up or something like frogs that. Frogs to fall. Um, <laughs> frogs start falling. Um, she's singing Drive by the, by the Cars, uh, which has great lyrics like um, you can't go on thinking nothing's wrong. Like it's all, it's obviously very applicable to what Andrew's going through. And and Darren Chris like breaks down um, as Andrew Cannon as he's watching uh, famed singer Amy Mann <laughs> sing in this dive yeah. bar uh, in Minneapolis. And, uh, and David come back and sort of David comes back and sort of regards Andrew clearly overcome and, what, and, and is not. Yeah. What do we think Andrew is overcome with? I mean, you know, because I think this show, it, it does vacillate between depicting him Cunanan as a kind of remorseless sociopath which he maybe was but then there's also this other element and so I was trying to think about like is he crying for Jeff is he crying because he knows already that he has to kill David is he crying because uh you know he's forever chasing this fantasy that even he knows is not real um I don't know I think that it's it's kind of mysterious it reminded me a little bit of like something from the leftovers or something yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, everything you mentioned there is a possibility. For me, I, I was sort of interpreted as uh, the reality of what he did hit him. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea of the reality of what he has to do next hitting him is really powerful, too. So Yeah, and, and maybe this feeling of, um, you know, once you've committed a crime like that, or any serious crime... Your life is forever changed, right? And so maybe he's sitting in this dive bar listening to this beautiful song and realizing that, like, in some ways, life will never be beautiful again, you know? And yeah. and even though he can pretend it will be, uh, it's not because he's just completely upended his whole existence. Um, yeah, that's a really good scene. Uh, and, and, and I think the moment... This episode was a whole and maybe specifically this moment where I realized this show, which was already so like polished and accomplished, might be something really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get this flashback that, that you mentioned you might have some issues with, which is the younger David telling his daddy's gay. Um, you know, and his dad says, you mind if I take a moment? I don't want to say the wrong thing. I won't lie and say I won't make a difference. You know what I believe. I love you more than I love my own life. Um and David cries and he says, don't cry. There's no need for that, which is a callback to sort of what he said to younger David mm-hmm. uh, when they were hunting. Um, and and this strikes me as unbelievable. I, I regret that I don't have the Maureen North book in front of me right this minute, but there actually is, it's actually similar to something that David Madsen's dad actually did say, maybe in a letter okay. or something similar, but it, it's like, it is similar to, I, I, that also, it also struck me as like unbelievably woke for a Midwestern nineties dad to say, yeah. right. Um, I did like that. Can I take a moment? I don't want to say something wrong. Sort of yeah, reaction, no, but, I mean, um, in many ways, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost an ideal reaction for, for someone who is, you know, conservative and religious. 
Um, it's as maybe open-hearted as those kind of prejudices will allow in a way. Um, yeah. I just, and maybe this is revealing more about me than about the show. I just like always have a hard time uh, whether it's, you know, some schmaltzy commercial, there's a camera one I'm thinking of in particular, um, where like the son comes out to like gruff, you know, ma- you know, alpha male dad or not even alpha male, but, you know, just like uber straight dad. And they're mm-hmm. and they're 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 gruff, but cool about it. You know, I just find that to be such a wish that like prob- maybe doesn't really exist in the real world, although I'm sure it does. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of that scene um rub me the wrong way but i did like when he said um is it are you telling me this because you just got into school or whatever he gets into grad school i think it is or he won some prize um and he and then david's like well yeah i'm you know good news bad news and and i think that's a nice little um detail that that, that's in there yeah and the way he says it he like gestures he's like well you know good news and sort of gestures to his prize and then like sort of gestures to this moment it's uh you know it's funny and it's sad and it's sweet um and then we cut immediately to this like hell that david's currently in um he's he was asleep and dreaming of this i guess and then wakes up and he tries to run he has no shoes on and andrew catches him and you know, in that like really creepy, like, oh, you're so silly. You don't have your shoes on. Let's go back to the car. Like, it's just so, and you're like, maybe if he had shoes on, he would have made it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he could have, uh, I don't know. Andrew has his gun, whatever. Uh, and then, and then they're in this diner scene. And this is so like the trajectory of known things that happened with Andrew Kanan and, and David Madsen is, you know, they were in the apartment. They walked the dog sometime after Jeff Trail died. They were spotted in this diner and then, David died. So like the diner thing is another point on, on the sort of timeline of what this, uh, you know, kidnapping, I would call it, um, was. And here we have that, uh, exposition that we were, that we didn't get at the top of the episode, which is sort of like how they met, why a nice boy like David Madsen would be caught up with someone like Andrew Kinnanen in the first place. Um, and, uh, you know, it, talking about this rapturous meeting in San Francisco, which once again, we will see later in the season. I mean, it's, I, I almost feel like you need like a cork board of some sort to track like yeah. everything yeah. that's going to happen or read Maureen Norris book or, or listen to this yeah. podcast. But, uh, you know, the two, two of them had met in San Francisco. They talk about this night they spend in this hotel, which we will come back to a couple more times. Um, and then David turns a bit harsh on Andrew and he says, it's all a lie. You never worked for anything. It's all an act. Is that why you killed Jeff? Yeah. Um, and uh, you had mentioned, I think it was last week, uh, when when Lee Miglin and and Andrew were talking, or maybe earlier, where you said, you know, Andrew loves his lies, he loves his stories, he loves when people play along with his stories, and then when as soon as someone calls him out on it, uh, it is so dangerous and scary. Yeah. And this is like this is the that moment where David just calls Andrew out on his bullshit and um and things get really upsetting yeah because so. it's really the only thing you can do to injure him you know because otherwise he just th- things bounce off of him or he just sort of processes the processes them in a way that it somehow feeds the lie you know but if you just call him on the carpet and are like this is all bullshit um that's what gets through to him that's his kind of biggest insecurity i feel like and um you know the scene is cathartic because you want I mean, not to like denigrate, you know, his name and dead man's name, but like you want him to fight back at some point. You're like, just do something. 
And this at least is some a verbal sort of pushback against Andrew. Um, it's all in vain, obviously, or maybe even contributes to what happens next. But um, it is at least satisfying to see him do that in the same way that in, in the next week's episode, there's another similar scene where, where Andrew gets dressed down, although that one is a lot more bruising and arguably is maybe what tipped him over the edge. But that's for next week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. But um and then, and then, you know, they get in the car, they move to a second location, which is by the lake, which is where David Matson's body was found. And, uh, they're in, uh, Chisago County, which is a confusing, even if you're reading Maury Norris books, because like David Matson's found in Chisago, which is in Minneapolis. And then, uh, Andrew goes to Chicago, right. which is a different place by one letter only. But, um, you know, David, Andrew, Andrew has got the gun on David. This is like, this is it. And then David tries to backpedal to the lies from earlier. And he's like, we'll be happy. We'll get a house in Mexico. We'll get a house by the ocean, which is similar to sort of this house by the lake idea. Um, we'll be happy. And, and this, this really reminds me again of that Lee Miglin thing where Andrew said it could have been true. Like, why didn't you let it be true? Just sort of what Lee says to Andrew. Like, it could, you can just play along. Mm-hmm. It can be true if we decide it's, you know, it could be true. Um, and then this moment, which actually totally worked on me for a second. Did this, does this, uh, David running for the trailer, uh, and getting into the cabin work on you at all, even for like a half second at all? Oh, do you, you mean, did I believe it was real? I thought he made it at least into a yeah, trailer. No, I did too. Until and it, then obviously okay. it quickly becomes apparent. But, and you know, it's funny when he first made it into the little, abandoned shack i was and then he's yeah. like locking the door i was like oh this is like horror movie shit this is like this is not the right thing and then i realized what was actually happening which again could be very corny uh, and a little on the nose but i i don't know i was moved i i it worked on me yeah so we you know this is our this is our last um visit from david madsen's father where he runs into a trailer and we think he's cleared it like you know andrew's after him we think he's cleared it into a trailer uh and then we find out um that he's in the hunting cabin that was at the beginning of the episode his dad's there pouring coffee uh that's something his dad said in that first flashback that i like so much where he's like i enjoy drinking coffee with you or something mm-hmm. like that. it was just yeah. so like plain and sweet uh and so you real like as soon as you realize he's in the hunting cabin you're like oh my god he's already dead like and yeah. uh this this episode just totally got me um there's something spiritual then, about it like yeah. it's almost like he's yeah. going to heaven you know which is like not a really a language that this show has spoken before um i guess yeah. there's a little bit with miglin's like you know um little weird creepy underground chapel thing but um but yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it it's kind of metaphysical. It, it reminded me of the leftovers again. Um, yeah, you know, but I liked it. Yeah, once again, I was going to say exactly the leftovers, um, or like even a little Twin Peaksy. I don't sure, know, but yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so then we, you know, we realize that that David didn't make it to the trailer, and we cut back and we see he got shot in the back. He's on the ground, and and um, Andrew walks up to him and he puts his hands up, and Andrew sort of shoots him through his hands and that's another sort of fact of the case is that um like when they found david madsen's body by the lake there was 
an error in the forensics where they thought he had been killed much later than he actually was. And there was no way for them to believe that David Madsen had been on the run for, with Andrew as long as he, like for as many days as he had uh, without being an accomplice. So that theory that he was an accomplice stayed a theory for a lot longer than it should have. Uh, but what what is true is that there were defensive wounds on his hands. So it's clear that he was trying to like, you know, yeah. defend himself and, and Andrew shot him like through his hands. And, you know, they stopped short of like showing us the hands and like, which would have looked like Jesus stigmata and probably like way too much. But, um, but, you know, then Andrew sort of cozies up to, uh, to David right by the lake there. And it's, I, I, I'm almost losing it now. I lost it every time that I've watched this episode. I lost it here. Uh, Oh, sorry. So, what what was your? Yeah, no. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's something that this episode does in total uh, really well. But this scene in particular, um, it manages to be both really scary and and you know creepy and grim, but also really touching. Um, uh, and and it's tragic. You know, I mean, you we've spent an hour with this, you know, handsome, likable young guy. Uh, and then just like that, it's all over, you know, um, and and then Andrew, this sniveling shithead, you know, gets to go, but like has this fake moment of of, of um, affection for him, you know, and it's like you just murdered him. And it's like, well, and, and you just know that his psychology is, well, I mean, I had to, I had no choice. And it's like, well, yes, you did. You delusional creep, you know, <laughs> like, like, yeah, um, yeah. it's just uh, it's a really delicately handled scene. Um, where there is a certain beauty to Andrew, you know, lying next to his former lover, but like, obviously, in the context, it's horrible too. Right, and there's like a, a cricket or a grasshopper or some—I don't mm-hmm. know. It is—it's very artistically done. And um, something that I forgot to mention that David says to Andrew here before he dies is he says it's all over, and then of course we know like bitterly that it's not all over. Yeah. That Andrew still has a lot more killing to do. So. Um, yeah, and then and then the episode ends, and Andrew's off to the next thing. And um, one thing I wanted to talk to you briefly about is um, before we get to your great interviews with Cody Fern and Tom Rob Smith is I don't mind it because I do think this episode is so effective. But of all the portrayals in this show, I think this one of David Madsen is the m- most radical departure of the real David Madsen in that like Cody Fern, as he's written and as Cody Fern plays him, he's almost like this kind of Bambi figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. You know, he's just so sweet and delicate and hesitant and we'll see, actually see that sort of elsewhere in, in the series. Um, The real David Madsen, you know, was like quite charismatic guy. He was a sale, you know, he's an architect, but he's also a salesman. Like he was known for really being like a really good hard seller. And like, um, you know, he dated a, around a bunch of guys and all this sort of stuff. And, and so I, I think they really gentled him up. Not that the real David Madsen wasn't like a lovely guy. People loved him, but like they really, really sort of bambied him up for this portrayal. Um, and it works on me and it works for me, but it is, um, like I said at the top, this is the most poetic license that the series takes with the story. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's okay. I mean, you know, the, this obviously this skirted the, the line of or you know ran the risk of um kind of beatifying david madsen and turning him into this angel you know um this sorrowful you know tragic angel figure and 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 it maybe it does a little bit but like 
to get us into the emotional core of what the episode is trying to be about, um, I think that he's a really great vehicle for that. And, you know, we get to see another side, other sides of him later in this, in the season. So, um, you know, if you're mourning, uh, Cody Fern's performance, it's not quite done. So that's at least good. And this is, this is the most personal. It's, it's all unhinged, but this is the most, these are the most personal killings for Andrew. Like after this, it's just sort of like the wheels are off and he's lost control and he's killing Lee McGlynn and he's killing a poor random man for his car and then he's killing frickin' Johnny Versace. But like this, you know, this is the, the, the men who matter to him most in the world, the people maybe that matter most to him in the world. Uh, so it's a different kind of killing for, for Darren Chris to have to portray. I think, like, I feel like he's more in, control later because it's just sort of like he's committed to this crazy path that he's on um and yeah just just a really really amazing episode so let's let's listen to uh cody fern and tom rob smith talk with richard lawson about this episode house by the lake hi i'm jeremy larson the reviews director of pitchfork and this podcast is supported by pitchfork music festival Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, now on the line we have Tom Rob Smith, the uh, the the sort of the the mind behind uh, the assassination of Rajon- uh, Johnny Versace, because you, Tom, wrote all of these episodes. I think there were, there was so much um, for me for watching the show and just like reading more about about the case that was surprising or, or sort of illuminating in a way. Was there what was that moment for you? I mean, either in your research or in or in the actual writing of the show. Like what what snuck up on you or or. Did you feel differently about it once you were done than when you'd started? Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, you know, I'm starting from a... And in a way, my experience as a writer is going to grow experience to people's... to viewers, unless they were kind of in the minutiae before, which is, oh, I thought this story is about this, and actually it's about something very different. And I think that reveal, that surprise, is um, is very shocking. I think the sense of, A, that this... I mean, he's been written off, uh, as someone who we don't need to explore. He was just crazy. He was just after fame. He just sort of, he shot Johnny Versace and, you know, there's nothing more to say. And then you look at it and think, why are these stories um, dismissed as having no meaning? That to me is curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is a very unusual killer. He was very intelligent and he was very, um, he was very nonviolent. I mean, if you slice into lots of killers' lives, 
there are patterns of behavior that you think, okay, this, this person was moving towards violence. And I think it's true with Andrew. I think it's a much more uh, complicated picture. And uh, his family background was the, was the revelation. As soon as I got to the dad in particular, I, I kind of had a sense of who Andrew was and, and that journey he was about to go on, which is in effect a replica of his dad's journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we'll talk about that rather striking episode later on this podcast. But the um, the episode that we're on right now is episode four, House by the Lake, um, which I think is really the almost the thesis statement of the show in some ways. Um, on this podcast, we're grappling a lot with what the show has to say about uh, gay culture in America 20 years ago, about the closet, about the harm it does to not only the person in the closet, but those around them. And um, and, you know, in society in general that sort of dismisses gay narratives or di- did at that time, certainly. Um, you've written about this kind of thing before in Child 44 with London Spy. Um, where do you see the larger gay context of this show? And then maybe also more specifically this episode, which follows uh, David Madsen uh, as he is kind of, you know, inexorably headed towards his demise, but also reflecting back on his own experience coming out to his father, etc. Yeah, no, I think episode four is heartbreaking. I think it's um, you know, we get to, I think one of the, you know, one of the central ideas at the, at the, at the center of this story, which is that you can look out on the world and think this world is not for me. I'm not built for this world. I have no, I can't find a place in it. And, you know, if you're going to, you know, con- I don't know, boil down episode five, you have a man who is trapped with a killer. And the key image for me in the entire piece is when, um, David Madison played by, uh, amazing Australian actor Cody Fern uh, almost escapes he gets away from him and, and, and he's, in the, he's in the restroom of a bar and he looks out the window at the world and he sees the world passing by and you think oh when you're in a you're in the when you're basically being kidnapped by a killer that freedom is obviously going to be something incredible and exciting you're desperate to get to and he looks out of the window and thinks what am I escaping to disgrace hatred there is no freedom you know the world that is beyond this window that I should, in theory, in every other thriller, have climbed out of and, and run screaming for help. There is no help. The people that are going to come to arrest Andrew Cunanan will also arrest me because they won't believe I had nothing to do with Jeffrey Trail's death. They just won't believe me. They will hate me like they hate him because they hated me before. And to me, that um, is obviously heartbreaking. But... Um, it also then gets to the sort of the sadness at the end, which is even though David Madison realized that he is going to still say to Andrew, I don't, I can't live in your fantasy world where we're going to live together happily ever after. I'm going to, I'm going to reject it and say, I'm going to face the truth no matter what. And that is ultimately the sort of fundamental difference between their two characters. One was this loving and someone who was, appreciate the truth and someone who's uh, deluded and and a liar one thing that i in particular when i wrote about the film uh, the, the show when i reviewed it but also something we talk about a lot uh, on this show is this the series i think quite compellingly and and importantly dwells in a lot of the darker aspects let's say of the gay experience at least as it was 20 years ago in america for a certain group of people and you know i think in recent years there's been more of a push for positive representation right and 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 sort of to tell narratives that isn't just about like the gay character dying or whatever what do you see as the importance 
politically, if there is any, to to this particular story, um, or or you know, because what 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 do you think rescues it from it just being dwelling in this really kind of tragic, gory tale? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think um, you know, if you go back historically and you think, oh well, the only representation of of gay men and women were negative, then you can see why there's such a powerful pushback on that. But I think the push for equality means that you have to then think, I'm going to take all kinds of representation. I mean, I think of The Revenant, which is a great movie. I loved it. But, you know, straight white men do not come out of that movie looking very good. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, no one comes out of that cinema saying, oh, my God, that was a terrible representation. I feel, you know, my identity has been uh, attacked because they're so supremely confident in their identity. And I think with a growing sense of confidence, you have to say, well, I'm looking at characters that are both uh, extremely disturbed and characters that are uh, the opposite. And one of the interesting things about this story is that you have both a uh, a gay killer and his victims are these, you know, these gay men who are these great creators. They're the heroes of the piece. I mean, the hero of episode five, without question, is David Madison, this person who is caught up in this awful a trap um, with this killer and still has the courage in the face of almost certain death to say, I'm not going to live your lie. This is, this is, this is not for me. I think there's something very heroic about him. And part of what I was trying to, you know, part of what the episode is trying to reclaim is that sense of heroism, because he's very much seen as um, he's seen as obviously a victim in terms of the, the crime, but there was a cloud of suspicion over David Madison for a year. The police, I mean, the police declared him to be the killer at first, the suspect in the killing of Jeffrey Trail. And, you know, the parents really struggled to clear his name. And, um, uh, you know, such a gross injustice when clearly he had nothing to do with that killing. And, you know, in the episode is really kind of struggling with that injustice. Well, I wanted to ask you, particularly this episode, there is not a lot of factual information about what happened between when Jeff Trail was murdered and when David Madsen was. And so when writing the piece, what was that process like in terms of trying to create a narrative that was both, you know, obviously compelling, this is still television, but also respectful to uh, the victims and and as truthful as possible? Uh, How do you figure out that calibration? Yeah, I mean, I think there's more evidence than that it than there kind of seems at a glance. I mean, mm-hmm. the official version is, I mean, you kind of get into the weeds, but the weeds are really important. And, and one of the things that's mentioned in the episodes is that the buzzards to this apartment doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's important is someone had to bring Jeffrey Trout up to this apartment in order for him to get in. And the, because Maureen, um, uh, who I met and, and we really get on, Got on with had, had very much the same approach to me, which is that we both wanted to try and explain that David wasn't involved in this killing. I mean, she felt that very strongly, and I, looking at the case, felt it, you know, overwhelmingly. Her version was that he wasn't in the apartment at the say at the time of the killing, and I was thinking, I think I just can't understand that as an interpretation. I can't understand a two things. First of all, that. Andrew was such a manipulator. I mean, he was trying to do something with this killing, but both in the sense that he was killing Jeffrey, who had rejected him, but also trying to pull David into a connection with him, um, a sort of horrific connection. And I just couldn't imagine if David had been out of the apartment, him opening the door, finding the body, and then somehow going in. To me, that just was, I couldn't picture it. And it's true, I don't have evidence that 
that didn't happen. It's, it's a speculation. But when you're trying to tell a story, you think, I have to write that scene. What would David have done? He, he'd gone to walk the dog and he opens the door and finds a dead body and then walks into the apartment. I, I just couldn't mm-hmm. on any level see it. But I could see Andrew. We know that he was luring Jeffrey back to the apartment because they were meant to meet at a cafe to talk about their, their various issues in their life. And he actually goes to the cafe, Jeffrey, to meet um, Andrew. And Andrew calls and says, I think, um, something like, I have to stop with your gun, which is why he went to David's apartment. It was a trap. And if you're setting a trap, there's the next part of the trap, which is that David was going to be there and then felt culpable. And I think that... You know, Andrew's cleverness was that he plays on a very deep-seated fear, which is that we've always felt as you know, gay men and women that if somehow you open our, the door to our private lives, everyone looking in is going to be shocked and appalled and will be disgraced and exiled. And now suddenly, by killing Jeffrey in that apartment, that that lingering nightmare comes true because David knows if he does open this door, the world is going to be shocked and appalled and and they'll think he was involved somehow because he brought Jeffrey up. Someone, you know, he went down, opened the door. What's he going to say? I wasn't involved. What's he going to say? I didn't have a sexual relationship with Andrew. Um, you know, they were lovers in the past. It looks really, you know, it's going to be very hard for David to extricate himself from the trap that Andrew sprung around him. And we do have an eyewitness that saw the two of them. And, you know, it's hard to these, you know, you take these things with a pinch of salt, but saw the two of them walking together and, David had been crying and Andrew was just chatting at him really quickly. And so that really got a sense of one person who's distraught and one person who's trying to cajole him into, into going on the run together saying, listen, you've got no other option. Uh, if you call the police, they're going to arrest you. And I think it's, you know, it, it's easy when you're far away from something to think I'm going to react calmly and logically. But suddenly David has to accept that his life is over. Mm-hmm. Um, everything he's worked for, all his ambition, and he was hardworking, and he had a great network of friends and people who loved him, all of that is going to come to a stop. And everything he's tried to do for himself in Minneapolis, which has built this great life and this home, is over. And he clings on to the illusion that it's not for just a little while longer until finally he says, oh, we have to confront the police. Yeah. So, you know, I think there is there is stuff there. I mean, I think you're right that, you know, there is the dilemma of you are ultimately um, you're ultimately joining dots rather than, you know, dealing with a transcribed or a piece of video evidence. Um, and I just tried to really stick to what I thought was the fundamental truth, which is that A, that Andrew was a liar and a, and a, and that he was trapping David. And, and the second thing was that David struck me as a man who was full of love and uh, full of ambition and someone who wasn't involved in any way. And is that... And that was uh, the sort of struggle of the piece. And that's how you came about... Uh, you came up with this motif with the, his father, um, you know, and that really uh, lovely, um, you know, bit at the end where he run. You think he got away into this cabin and it turns out to be the his, his father's, you know. Um, when, when did that kind of arise for you? When did you come up with that? Did you always know sitting down to write there this episode? Was a, he was killed by... He was killed by an abandoned house by mm-hmm. the lake. So that was a sort of... Um, uh, a real geographical place. Uh, and I, I was thinking about that house and I interestingly had just watched Strangers by Strangers by the Lake. Oh, yeah. And so I was, had all these, the movie, and I had all these ideas in my head and I was like, in a weird way, what is what is the thing that David is looking for? He's looking for 
a house, a home with someone that he loves that is safe. And that's the sort of fundamental idea of the piece. And in a weird way, that's the fantasy that Andrew corrupts and dangles in front of his face and says, I can give that to you. Um, no one else can. The rest of the world hates you, but, you know, I love you. Um, and actually what David is saying, well, actually you're offering a corrupted version of something that is, should be pure and special, and I'm rejecting it. Um, and so he's kind of, that's the sort of the, the house by the lake is this kind of romantic ideal that he's chasing, this, this ideal that he'll be accepted and, and, and could have the life that everyone dreams of and that he dreams of. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that's in, in, in kind of circling the episode. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's really illustrated beautifully. And, and you know, I, I think I've seen all but the, the finale. And I think this episode uh, is my favorite. I mean, it's weird to say that because it's so tragic. Uh, but uh, it's just it I think it really gets at the heart of what the show is trying to do um, in, in a really important way. Yeah, it's a it's it's a really beautiful it's a really beautiful and sad episode. And uh, and I think rather than um you know, we talk about the sadness of it. I think it, I also find it very inspiring. I find, you know, just as a writer, getting to, you know, there is a magic about writing and reading, and there is that that feeling that just from reading scraps about David's life, I could get to know him a little bit and some feel some connection with him. You know, there's some sense of um, him being this inspirational figure rather than just being someone that people have forgotten and uh and that was a sort of privilege actually to 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 tell that story well i think that just about wraps it up um tom thank you so much for talking to us and uh for writing well this beautiful episode but also so much of the show it's it's really a treat and we enjoy talking about it and love to have you on that's great it was lovely talking to you Well, I'm on the line now with Cody Fern, uh, who uh, is so spectacular in this really sad and tragic episode of this show. Uh, we're handling not just some heavy emotional terrain, but this is a real person and who really was, you know, died in this tragic way. And um, I'm curious, did you speak with his family at all? How did you kind of connect to the David that we see on screen? How did you find that character? You know, I, the first thing that I went to was Maureen's book, um, mm-hmm. Vulgar Favors, because there's so much material in there. I mean, she had spoken to David's family and David's friends and work colleagues, and, and she got so much information about him. Uh, and I kind of came a, around to, to figuring David out in a very strange way, which I'll go into. But I didn't contact the family. I mean, I think when we started the production... Uh, there was some question about whether or not actors should contact the families. Um, and I think out of respect, we, you know, I decided, I know collectively, you know, everyone kind of decided that that, that was probably best to avoid. Um, especially with David, I mean, it's such a shocking death and it's, it's something that would be very hard for a parent or a sister or anyone close to talk about. Um, so out of respect for the family, I kind of, uh, steered clear, um, and just stuck to the source material. And also when you're dealing with a script, you know, you're dealing with Maureen's research and then Tom's, um, dialogue and the way that he writes his scripts and it's so respectful and it's so thoughtful. And so I just went straight to that, um, 
rather than trying to figure out who he was as a person. I, I, I went in through secondhand accounts and from what I had on the page, which was a lot. Um, and also, I think, you know, I'll say this, when you're dealing with any character, real life or otherwise, you might have an idea of the character, but then you throw them into a situation like they throw David into in the first five minutes of this episode. And anything that you think constitutes a personality kind of goes out the window because it's so crazy to see, I mean, one of your best friends, you know, brutally murdered and then fear for your life and then figure that you have to, you know, mediate with this person to stay alive. And I think any normal personality traits that you might have uh, start to melt away and you go into survival instinct. And I think that's, something that I, you know, worked with a lot with David was what happens when everything goes out the window and you just have to survive. Yeah, and 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 we do meet him first in this such an extreme situation. We will later in the season get to see David in a different light and his relationship with Andrew in a very different more uh friendly, loving light. Um was it hard working backward like that? Like, I mean, I assume you filmed this first and then the subsequent ones later. Um, did you and Darren have to have any kind of conversations about what the relationship had been prior to, or was it just there on the page? Um, well, I, I got my hand on uh, a bunch of uh, postcards and letters that Andrew had sent to David. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and there were, you know, 50 plus of these postcards and letters and, and Andrew would write to David when he was traveling or when he was pretending that he was traveling and he was in France and he was in Europe or he was in Prague or he was in... And the way that he communicated through the letters, it was very clear that they had this special relationship. And, uh, and it's endearing, you know, when you see it and not knowing everything that comes later... It's uh, it's the beginning of a beautiful love story. So I had read those first going in um, and knowing kind of the sensitivity of their relationship. Um, but we were thrown right into the deep end. We were thrown right into episode four. So I think this, the first or the second day was the murder of Jeff Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we worked back from there. It was to me, it was very liberating to work backwards because what you have is the most extreme traumatic uh, time in a person's life, and then I get I got to release that over the, the course of the series and work, you know, our way back to how did these two meet, and so you had something to look forward to because otherwise you would kind of plunge into how these two people met and they fell in love, and then you walk away having shot the series on kind of a sad note. And I know this sounds very, um, I don't know, cosmic or, and I, and I don't mean to be, but there was something nice about um, giving this man, David Madsen, the opportunity to work back, you know, and, and to, to be left with a moment of beauty rather than a moment of, of uh, terror. I, I felt there was something nice about that working as an actor and, and certainly uh, personally to kind of be shedding yourself of, of all of the horror that, that we see in episode four and to work backwards and, and release that and, and fall in love and 
see beautiful things and work things out. And I think that was a nice send off, you know, the way that we remember David in the series is, is not the way that we see him in four. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's something that really strikes me about this episode and, and David's character and your performance it, it, is that he's afforded such humanity, you know, for this person that, you know, the, 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 the average viewer doesn't know anything about. And, and, and this is also a story and a show that could, in the wrong hands, sort of verge into this, you know, gay cliche kind of nightmare, you know, situation where everyone's playing up. And, and I'm just curious, like, how conscious of you were, were, were you of trying to calibrate, um, you know, this, this sort of queer sensibility and, and the horror, but also the beauty? I mean, like, is that, is that tough to do in the day? Um, or, or, if, or are you able to kind of lock in on a character and just, and just, it comes naturally after that? You know, when you hand, uh, yourself over to somebody like Ryan Murphy, you, you're so trusting um, that the the larger kind of queerness or over-the-topness or, you know, whatever you want to refer to it as is um, is something that you... I don't... You don't really see it. You're in, you're in the character and you're in the mode of what's happening in the moment and... You don't see that 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 big picture that you know the bright right. lights and the this and the that. You just see the person in front of you. And for me, that was goal number one: is that David can pretty much never take his eyes off Andrew, um, and he's always got to be calculating what Andrew is thinking and how he's feeling and mediating his moods and you know trying to find passages of escape and does he want to escape and dealing with his own shame and. So there's so much internal things going on that all of the external things kind of fade away. Uh, speaking of being in the moment, this is maybe kind of a silly technical question, but that reaction shot as David is watching Andrew do this to Jeff uh, is so striking. And it really, you know, it, it shows us more than if we had just sort of seen the actual act happening. I'm curious, what's going on behind the camera at that point? I mean, are you actually looking at something happening? Is Darren there or how does that work? I'm curious. That's uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll, a little anecdote. On that particular day, we we got the filming schedule, and it was, you know, we were going to be shooting uh, Jeff's death, and and this is what we would be shooting, and and these are the the playouts of the scene. So on the call sheet, it didn't have. Uh, you know, David's reaction and David covered in blood and David, et cetera, et cetera. So I assumed, as did everybody else, that, um, well, myself, Finn Whitrock and, uh, Darren Chris, that that would be something that we shot, you know, the next day or whenever it came out on the schedule. And Dan, who's such a great director, said on the day, he was, you know, filming the the death of Jeff Trail and his blood and his this and his that. And then he said, "Okay, let's turn the camera around and uh, and now we're going to get you, Cody." And myself, Finn, and Darren all went, "Wait, what? What do you mean?" He said, "Well, we're going to get your coverage now." And I was like, "Oh my God, I'm not prepared for this." You know, I'm I was you know freaking out about it and um, and. Darren and I were kind of like, oh, man, this is tough. And Dan is such a good director, and he was like, just trust yourself, Cody. Just, we're just going to do it, and we're just going to see what happens. And if we need more time, then we need more time, and we have time on the schedule. But, you know, with a, he's, 
what did he say to me? He said, with a moment like this, it's not something that you can plan for. It's something that you've got to dive right into because you don't know that this is coming and you don't know how to process it and you can't make choices, um, you know, as an actor because you have to be really raw and authentic. And so we set the whole thing up so that the murder of Jeff Trail is happening and there's a camera over there and watching that and then the reaction shot of David. So we were kind of thrown right into the fire and and that's what it ended up being, which was brilliant because, you know, otherwise you're thinking as an actor, oh, there's this moment and there's this and I'm feeling this and I should try and get to this and then I've got to be in the moment, you know. Whereas Dan just threw us in and said, okay, well, here's the moment. Don't miss it. <laughs> so did you know anything about this story before you signed on? I mean, obviously you read Maureen's book, and, but like, how familiar were, were you with the Andrew Crenan story or with the Versace you know, murder? Um, and, and if not, like, what surprised you most as you, uh, you know, kind of did your research or, or prepared for filming? Those six days where where David was with Andrew was the most fascinating part of this story to me because, I mean, what do you do? You know, as a human being, uh, essentially being kidnapped after seeing something like that, how do you, you know, how do you get through six days? Um, and also, I think, you know, what the what the series deals with um, in a really subtle way. You know, there are there are certainly things that are more overt, but the subtleties of the series, you know, it deals with not only how the police, you know, bungled this because of uh, a sense of, of homophobia at the time, you know, it was just a gay killing and this is like let the, the gays run and do their thing and, you know, it was very much that attitude. But also the series deals with this internalized sense of shame uh, gay shame at the time, and it's something that, that Jeff deals with, and it's something that David deals with. It's something that even Andrew deals with, you know, telling people that he's straight, telling people that he's gay, not really being in one place or the other. Uh, you know, Versace's coming out, and I think for David, what really interested me was this sense of, in the script, certainly, was how he's dealing with the shame that had been following him around all his life, his own internalized gay shame, in the face of something uh, that's so gruesome uh, and, you know, finding some strength within that and, and realizing that this, uh, this, you know, moment in time is at a point of still unaccepting of, of who they are, mm-hmm. I think was, it was sad. It would look, it was sad. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's certainly not a series that you go into and think like you're going to walk away cheering. No, and in fact, I'm. I you know I expected it to be sort of splashy, and you know because I didn't know much about it either. And so, um, getting these episodes where we 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 are are shown the lives of people we didn't really know anything about, I think is really is really valuable and gives the the series a lot more, you know, heft or something. And that's where I think Ryan has to be paid, you know, absolute kudos. Is that there's a switch in a bait that happens in the series. Is everyone was ready for this to be a huge, splashy fashion, you know, um, drama. And he really uh, honors the victims that came before. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that's so important because in the death of somebody like Gianni Versace, we remember the death of Versace. And 
we didn't like I didn't know there's four people that came before this, four people who aren't famous fashion designers, four people who had a family and who loved and who were brought into the sordid world of Andrew Cunanan and who went down because of it, but whose stories are equally as vital as somebody like Versace, you know, and I think for Ryan to to really focus on those stories is incredibly brave and and it does great justice to those people. You know, I'm very curious to see what happens this week when people see the episodes because it's completely changed from the world that we've been in. Mm. Um, you know, the colors are different. The world is different. It very much, we've seen glamour and it takes that and strips it away and says, okay, and now we're in the real world. Um, so I'm curious to see how it happens, how the yeah. entire audiences react. <laughs> well, I think the reception is going to be good. Cody Fern, thank you so much for talking to us. Really appreciate it. And, and good luck. I and mean, we'll see you again on the show. So you're, you're, you're not gone yet. <laughs> I'm not gone for a while. No. And thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Richard, is there anything that you want to announce before people go? Perhaps a, a, a book that mm-hmm, might be mm-hmm, worth mm-hmm. reading? When this airs, the book will have been out for one day. So I'll be, it'll be, this like should be my last episode because I'm going to be a J.K. Rowling style billionaire uh, by <laughs> by Wednesday, uh, which is exciting. Uh, yeah, I wrote a novel called All We Can Do Is Wait that is out in stores now. You should buy it or e-read it. Or actually, there's an audio book that I just listened to this past weekend, and I'm very happy with how that turned out. So I didn't. Re- it's not me. Don't worry. It's someone who can act. Who read um, it? An, an actress, a New York-based actress. Oh, um, cool. Anyway, so that's that's what I'm crowing about and probably will do for the next few weeks anyway. Okay, I'm Joanna Robinson. I do not, alas, have a book out this week. Um, but you can read some Black Panther coverage that Ooh, I'm very yeah. excited about that's going up on the website this week. Um, and we will be talking about that movie probably on the other podcast that we do together, Little Gold Men. And until then, we will see you next time. This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth and produced by Dave Gonzalez with editorial support from Katie Rich. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitch. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Shield being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. (laughs) On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>